You're listening to Deeper Magic. Well, it feels a little scandalous for me to be leading us in today since I'm the woman and you're the head of the household, so I don't really know about this one. I ordered you to. It's the way it should be. You did. That's the thing. I think my favorite moment of this week, though, Mm -hmm. by far, happened real recently, just 24 hours ago, when being the ever-relevant person that I am, dialed into anything that's going on within the culture... I just casually, as I do, because I'm dialed in, mm-hmm. I, I just casually mentioned the name Dylan Mulvaney. And I and I watched you literally black out with the idea yeah. that your 52-year-old, relatively irrelevant father <laughs> knew quite well the story of Dylan Mulvaney. So it, it, it was... It was fascinating. I, okay, now, in fairness, mm-hmm. I got to know of her through the story of the Bud Light boycott that has caused the collapse of... The what? See, you don't even know this part of it. The no. reason why she's in the social zeitgeist and at the level that she's in right now is because Bud Light has been America's number one beer forever and ever and ever, like 22 years running, and it's not close. I well, was I at, know what Bud Light is. Right, but, but the prominence of the beer, and it's been like this... Mm-hmm. Americana kind of beer. It's Clydesdales and baseball games and yeah, apple pie totally. and all of that. I was at a brewery not too long ago, or at least a bar in Wisconsin. I don't think they have breweries in Wisconsin because it's not that sophisticated. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I just alienated a bunch of Wisconsin. I mean, you're so, not wrong. No, though. that's the thing. So, so at their bars in Wisconsin, after a night of bowling and cheese, they they. Uh, I, I was there for this fantasy baseball draft with a bunch mm-hmm. of buddies of mine that I've been with for thirty years. And one of the guys owns the bar. So he was giving me a tour and it was a great place. It was a super yeah. cool place. I said, what's your number one selling beer? Bud Light. He's, he literally said Bud Light, Bud Light, Bud Light. He is, nobody drinks anything else, okay? Yeah. So that's the backstory. Well, Bud Light hired Dylan Mulvaney to be a social oh. influencer with just like they created a commemorative can with her likeness on the can and then used her to pitch drinking Bud Light during the final four in March or April, whenever the basketball tournament was this last year. And that caused such an unbelievable backlash from the conservative demographic of Mm -hmm. the United States that they all said, we are done. Like some guy named Kid Rock literally lined up several cases of Bud Light and used his AK-47 and just started mowing them down. And other people were doing something similar. And so there was this massive boycott. And Bud Light, after 22 years being firmly entrenched as the number one brand is no longer the number one brand in America. They've lost almost all of their oh my sales. Gosh. That's uh, crazy. Yeah, different breweries or, or the distributors of Bud Light have had to be shut down. People have lost their jobs all because of one partnership with this theater kid, Dylan Mulvaney, who decided to chronicle his transition over 365 days from male to female. And so right. super fascinating to watch all that. And I'm just curious, did you... When Dylan was chronicling that transition, did you follow any of it at that time? Um, not actively, but I saw videos of it. And every once in a while, like something else would pop up with like, oh, this is where I'm at in my transition and whatever. Like it was it was something that was vaguely on my radar, like to the point where when you mentioned Dylan Mulvaney the other night, I was like, how do you know who that is? Because I was like, <laughs> what in what world did you come across that? Um, but yeah, no, I've been like vaguely aware of Dylan Mulvaney for a while. Yeah. I just happened to see the headlines and, and found out about that, but it was, it was really interesting all the follow-up stuff Mm -hmm. that has happened since then where sort of the conservative wing of American politics, you know, and again, I'm such a political agnostic, apolitical, Mm -hmm. I don't care. Right. Yeah. But the conservative wing now feels all emboldened to continue to boycott absolutely everything. And they've been boycotting Disney. They've been boycotting Target. And it's actually like worked. And so we're in this really weird mm-hmm. time as a country in understanding some of this stuff. And Dylan Mulvaney was just in the crosshairs of all of this. Whatever you yeah. think about the merits of what he and then she did and all of that, it was just a really interesting time. So that's how that reference came up was observing some cultural things. But I, I did watch some of the reaction after her 365 days. And of course, the hatred of the conservative community, yeah. the embrace of certain elements of a more liberal community But there was even, and this is what I was curious to maybe get your thoughts on, then we'll move around from this topic, but that some members of of the more liberal community thought that Dylan was being a bit of, uh, that she was a bit of a fake because she was able to recognize what would sell really well on TikTok and developed all of these millions of followers and bazillions of dollars as a result of all of these followers. And so they question 
whether she is the best representative of the transgender community because there wasn't an authentic dysphoria mm. per se. She, he leveraged the ability to gain a lot of followers on TikTok by creating this idea of um, you, you can follow my transition over 365 days. It was really interesting to just see yeah. pushback, embrace reasons why, what's going on. And the last thing I would say is Mulvaney, I read a pretty extensive interview with her just talking about the need to be seen. And feeling like he did not have people that saw him. And it's part of what we're going to talk about on this mm-hmm. podcast is we're going to get into the Hagar story. That's going to be the bulk of the podcast because oh, we have a chance a nice to study transition. that. nice transition. I was wondering that where good? you were going with this. And so Hagar being like being seen by God, mm-hmm. but, uh, but Dylan Mulvaney just talked ex- specifically about the horrors of fading into anonymity and mm-hmm. needing to do something with that. And I think it just speaks to all of us needing, needing to be seen on some level. Yeah, I mean... In terms of speaking to Dylan Mulvaney specifically, um, you apparently have a lot more information about Dylan Mulvaney than I do because (laughs) I've just seen the videos passing by. And so um, wasn't even like I probably could have guessed that there was going to be a lot of hate from the conservative community and maybe some acceptance and some non-acceptance from the more liberal community as well. Like I, I that was something that I probably could have guessed, but it wasn't something that I necessarily knew outright. Um, I'm for sure hesitant to speak to whether or not that's like an ethical thing to do because i'm like especially in in what the internet is i feel like questions of ethics is like not even a a hole worth jumping into um but yeah no it was just i had a similar reaction the other night when you when you mentioned dylan mulvaney to how I did when you brought up um, I Kissed a Girl by Katy Perry in your sexuality (laughs) class the other day. And Caleb and I looked at each other and we were like, how does dad know that song? And Caleb looked at me and he was like, I'm 100% certain that he just Googled lesbian songs before we walked into (laughs) class today. And I was like, that's the only explanation that I am comfortable with at this point because the idea of you listening to that song in the car by yourself is like so wild to me. Oh, I am so secretly relevant. You have no idea. I'm just dad at home. You've been undercover this I, whole time. <laughs> well, it, these it, that's the best part about teaching a class on sexuality is how mm-hmm. it forces me to stay current on what's happening. I don't think I would even follow a lot of this stuff, but it, it's fascinating to me. I think one last thing that's really interesting mm-hmm. is that within the LGBTQ community right now, I think they're like, and I'm not, I'm just like stating, I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just stating where we are with this is that I don't think there's really any pushback from any corner anymore, anywhere about the G and the L of the LGBTQ people Mm. seem in American society, generally fairly comfortable with the idea of gay relationships and lesbian relationships. I mean, there's still, I would pushback. say there's still a decent amount of pushback on yeah. that. But um, I think compared to But not the, what it used to be for sure. Yeah. And I think compared to the gender change part of it, like the mm. transgender and and some of the hormone bl- or puberty blockers or change of your biological structures result, it's just really interesting to watch that there seems to be a fairly wide accept- acceptance of part of it and uh, some pretty vicious uh, like pushback against other parties. I don't know where that's all going to go. I just find it's really interesting where we are right now in all of the conversation related to it. Cause we just didn't see, I guess we did. I mean, the church certainly was horrible uh, related to people in gay relationships when that yeah, first became seriously. part of the social consciousness. But, but it's just as interesting to see where we are. And I don't know if we'll get to a place. And again, I'm not saying good or bad. And I'm not saying like getting to a place is going to be good or getting mm-hmm. to a place is going to be bad. I'm just saying that I don't know if there'll be a time where the sort of the T part of this is as widely accepted as the L and the G. And then from there, you can debate all the merits of all of it. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying it's just an interesting observation right now. Yeah, I would say it's probably, I think because it's a a newer concept, at least in how... Um, maybe relevant it is to modern culture um i think that that piece of lgbtq um is louder right now i think i would say than like um than same gender relationships or whatever i i I would say that some of the gender exploration of all of that is is i think louder in the media and louder in the public eye right now um but yeah, I don't know. It's definitely something that is like in and out of my daily life as well. Like it's all of 
all of the ideas of the, like the LGBTQ community as something that is in all of my social circles. It's in all of my work communities. It's in all my school communities. It's like it's not something that I don't think about every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It, and I think that generational difference in, in experience and mm-hmm. daily experience is something that is really worth observing as well, because it, it's almost never part of my day. Mm. And it's always part of your day. And yeah. I just think that's just intriguing as a place of conversation. I mean, mm-hmm. my whole background was, yes, it was divinity and Bible and, you know, and all of that. But it, it was, there was a whole section of it that was based on sociology or just the observation of religion, of faith, of relationships, of trends, of currents, all of that kind of stuff and how it impacts human behavior. And I just find it a fascinating time where... I just, you, well, you were in the class where I was teaching a little bit about when you look back over 60 years of this conversation, mm-hmm. there's sort of this shocking development somehow that is breaking social norms. And then that's shocking becomes sort of normal and kind of laissez-faire. We just, yeah, now we just live and let live kind of thing. And it, yeah. you know, you can trace it back. I just, you, the, the common example is friends. I always use that one when they introduce so many different new versions of sexual behavior in, within a beloved TV show and how so much of it was shocking at the time. But all of that is fairly tame. And in, and in some circles, people see it as backwards yeah. thinking now. And so I'm just, I don't know if the T part of where we're living right now is just the newest version of feeling shocking because it's different. And then it would become sort of part of our society. But I think it draws the bigger question and just tying it back again into Hagar is I've wondered, and maybe you can just give me your thoughts on this. Like I, I know how amazing it is to feel seen by somebody. Mm-hmm. And if you're just doing what everybody else is doing, you're probably not going to get seen. But if you're able to to act or be in a certain way, and I don't, I'm not just saying sexually, no, I'm just saying in general, if you're yeah. able to be outside the norm in some way, even if the attention that you're getting isn't always the best attention, at least you're getting attention. I think it just speaks to the need for all of us to feel like somehow we want to be seen by somebody, anybody at mm-hmm. all that, that can see into us and through us. And again, I know that's a big part of our story today, but I just wonder you're the people that you run with, how do you understand their lives in terms of, do they feel seen Do they not? And maybe you never have these conversations, but I'm just kind of curious. Oh no, we it. definitely have these conversations. Well, and the thing is, is like Growing up in high school, um, I'm ashamed to admit it now, but I was a theater kid. Um, I was. I was why, the, why are you ashamed of that? It's never a good thing. You you can always tell when you meet a theater kid. You're either like you're currently or you were a theater Wait, kid. Is there a difference between a kid who is in theater and a theater kid? Because I feel like I yes. know lots of kids in theater that are lovely kids. But are you talking about more of a paradigm of theater kid? Yeah, I feel like this might be a helpful distinction for you. I was not the theater kid who was like, I'm going to be a star. I was the theater kid that was like, this is what all of my friends are doing and I want to hang out with my friends. And if I never leave the ensemble ever, and maybe even I'll just be stage crew, that's totally okay with me. And I feel like that's more like a kid who's in theater kind of vibe. And that was a lot of like, that was... Well, no, it wasn't a lot of my friends. It was some of my friends in high school. We were kind of that group. And those are the people, weirdly enough, that I'm still friends with. Um, But the ones who were the theater kids, where it was like this was their life and there was no distinction between when they were on stage or off stage, where it was like everything was a performance. Everything felt scripted. Everything like you could have an interaction with somebody in the hallway and you would be like, that just felt like a scene out of a sitcom. (laughs) Like that's what I'm talking about when I say theater kid. Okay. Um, but I knew I knew a lot of people like that in high school, and I know a lot of people like that at at university as well. And it's so interesting because it really is this persona, and you can see it on them where they're like, "No, this is who I'm going to be to get your attention, to make you notice me, to get you to see that I'm." wonderful person worthy of seeing and knowing and being friends with and whatever. And there's this like weird frantic energy underneath it. And it just doesn't feel real. Yeah. But I see so much of it in a lot of the circles that I run in. I saw most of it in high school. And I think that's where I was more aware of it because it felt really tangible because I could tell that it wasn't real Hmm. because it, it didn't feel any different than it did when we were on stage. Um, 
Does that make sense? That yeah, distinction it where it was like we would get off stage and it didn't feel like they then became their normal person. It felt like they just became a different character yeah. when we walked yep, off stage. That's yep. Um, so it's it's maybe a little easier for me to spot now, having had a lot of those interactions. But I think it's something that I see in like it's that's not just me like hating on theater kids. Um, that that is something that I see in every sphere of my life. I where do too. It's, it's really hard to find people who are just themselves all the time. And that, and like, that's even something that I struggle with where I'm aware of the fact that I'm like, Oh, I'm different people in the different places where I exist in my life. And I don't feel like any of them aren't me, but I do feel like there are certain aspects of myself that come out in different environments, depending on where I am and who I'm with. Well, and I think so much of that is a function of, especially when we were little and we were maybe a, a more fully integrated self, meaning that we brought who we were to whatever environment in which we found ourselves. And then there's some kind of rejection or some kind of negative response or some kind of something. Mm -hmm. We learn how, which slice of ourself to bring in which environment to avoid the negative response in that environment. And certainly I talk about this in my classes a ton that most of the young people, but I don't think it's a young people. I think many people feel quite disintegrated in that way. They just, they are a certain version of themselves or like no version of themselves yeah. in certain environments. Cause they just can't be, cause they, if they, if somebody was to see them and actually really see them in that biblical sense, they would be terrified by the idea because of how people might respond to them. Mm -hmm. And I just think so many people have so few relationships where they feel really seen. And that, that it includes probably, more marriages even than we would know where the husband and wife oh, do not sure, see each other. Absolutely. And, and I just can't think of it. There's probably other longings equally as deep as the need to be seen. I don't know what they are though. If, mm -hmm. if there are deeper ones, I, they're not off the top of my head. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right in all of that where just the idea of being seen is so scary. And I think it's not something that we get a lot of in our day to day. I know that I'm lucky enough that I can say I'm, I maybe have eh, maybe two, maybe three people who I feel like see all of me. Yeah. Um, and, and even then I do feel like there are more versions of myself that they get and it's maybe not a hundred percent all of it. Um, but, but there are a few people that I have in my life that I'm like, Oh, I feel like you get most of this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how it is for you, but when I choose to intentionally let down my guard a little bit, mm -hmm. it's such unfamiliar territory mm -hmm. that I almost don't know how to let down my guard. I like, I feel like I'm being so real, but it's fake in my real because I don't know how to be real. It, like yep. it's so it's such unfamiliar territory to even hazard that risk with somebody else. And I certainly have done it mm -hmm. with friends and just maybe and it's not all at once, you know, but to at least maybe pull back the curtain a little bit on this section of my soul. Yeah. And bear a little bit of them for them. I'm like, okay, so how did that go? Mm -hmm. You know, and then you have that sort of vulnerability hangover the next day where you're like, oh, what did they think? Do and you it hate just, me? I know, yeah. it's, it's, it just speaks to that. Well, I, maybe there's a good time to get into our story a little bit more yeah. about Hagar with just that theme. And I think just before we do, one last comment that you and I were talking about is been spending a lot of time lately thinking about the concept of biblical literacy. And it's utterly fascinating <clears throat> to me. When you see how the scriptures or sola scriptura, this it's Latin, right? Sola scriptura would be Latin. Yeah. You think I'd know this kind of thing. Well, anyway. Because it's scripture alone. Yeah, it's scripture alone. So as being one of the primary tenets or principles of the Protestant Reformation is that in order to correct the abuses of the church that has gone that have gone before us, we are going to commit ourselves to sola scriptura. It's going to be scripture alone. We're going that to bring went in well. We're gonna. We're, I know. Sorry. We're gonna. We're gonna shove aside the communion table. We're gonna bring in the pulpit. We're gonna make sure that we teach scripture all the time. You would mm -hmm. think that after four hundred plus years of scripture teaching, there would be some scripture talk. There would be. There would be some biblical literacy. And I just think what's really important to note. And I just had this conversation today, but I've been teaching across three evangelical mm -hmm. institutions in these last twenty years, and to an institution and to a class when we do the exercise what scripture verses do you know? They all know the What's same. What's the Jeremiah one? Well, for sure. 
I was going to say the Jeremiah one, the one about women not teaching in the church. John 3.16. Probably some of Genesis 1, nah, but not a lot of not it. Much, not much further than in the beginning and there is some light that happened. Well, that and, and some animals. Eating the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. there is some of that. I mean, and, and again, people are going to know some of the Noah stories and some of that. They'll know mm-hmm. some stories. But not actual verses. Yeah. and But the verses are Romans 3.23. Love the 3, Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That would be one. But uh-huh. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, John 3.16. Mm-hmm. Like... And I, I asked nothing question, really from the Old Testament because you don't need to know that. <laughs> you don't. I just had that conversation today. I was like, so what's the problem with using the verse, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for training and rebuking and a bunch of mm-hmm. stuff in righteousness? What's the problem when applying that to the New Testament? And they're like, and they got it pretty quick. One, one young woman is like, the New Testament hadn't been compiled yet. I'm like, ding, ding, ding. You know, so why, so why are we... Uh, I said, why are we distributing all these New Testament-only Bibles with a few psalms chucked in? And a guy jumped in. He's like, well, to get people saved, but tongue-in-cheek. Oh, my gosh. It was totally tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> he was like, he, he could see okay, it. Okay, good. But the point of all of it is that there, there, there's not biblical literacy. That is not biblical literacy that everybody no. knows the same 20 verses. And, I, and what I was suggesting that it indicates is that there is a very prominent set of theological ideas that a very influential section of American evangelicalism decided to get in front of and then really propagate into the seminaries. And it was this whole sort of reformed, get saved, Romans Road, like all this kind of stuff. They had the most power at that time to influence the educational scope and sequence of the seminaries who then trained pastors, who then trained people. And they were training them not in biblical literacy, they were training them in a theological view using a few verses to underpin that theological view to the exclusion of all of these other verses. And the reason why I bring all of that up is mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly important to do when, when we start, if we want to actually become biblically literate, we sort of have to do a searching for Bobby Fisher kind of thing oh my where gosh. we just sweep. I love that movie. I do too. It's one of my favorites, but yeah, that scene where, he can't move until he sees it and he's with his mentor and and then his mentor just clears the whole board. I just think, I don't think the Bible neatly fits in to the theological pervasiveness of this weird version of salvation when we actually want to become students of it, which is why for me, as we've started getting into the Hagar story and you just studied this in depth Mm -hmm. and this is, we're just only going to cover a part of the story in this episode but I listened to another hour-long podcast today of somebody that is going to join us, actually, on Deeper Magic, Rebecca yeah, Ree, and I'm so excited for so her. Fun. She's an East Coast scholar. And she was talking about Hagar. I'm like, I know almost nothing of the Hagar story. And Whereas I, I'm obsessed with Hagar. You totally. I love her. I can't wait for you to walk us through this. Mm-hmm. You're raising your hand. Do I, I, I am. You? Well, no, just because I have a comment quickly about the whole theology and medical oh, literacy thing. Bonkers. me bonkers. Um, when I said this to you before we started recording, it was slightly stronger worded than this. Um, But we were talking a little bit about how one of the things that we hear a lot when we're talking about like, hey, this is what it actually says in the Hebrew versus what you're reading in your English Bible. One of the really common responses is, but that's not what it says in my English Bible. Right. And we're always like, yeah, because it's a lot of translations. It's a lot of different versions that the Bible has been through. And then it's been filtered through centuries and centuries and centuries of terrible theology, where then the Bible has kind of been shifted and restructured to match what the theology of the time is in the middle of translating it out of a language that doesn't translate very well into English. And so, of course, what you're reading in your English Bible is very different than Mm -hmm. what it says in the original Hebrew. Yeah, I think that's so well said. And I think... Until you, and, and hermeneutics is just the fancy word for a biblical interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's just a willingness to get behind the scenes and recognize that it wasn't written in English. And I think when you do, and if you do the work of clearing the board of yeah. whatever theology, and it doesn't mean that all theological conversations are bad or wrong. I just think that we know way more, either we're aware of how much we know about a theological view or we're not aware of it, but we've been swimming in certain theological views way more than we've been swimming in scripture. Yeah. And so at least I will say that for me, for sure, but I think a wide variety. I mean, it's, that's certainly been true of 20 years of, of classes, just the sheer illiteracy. So it's exciting to just maybe clear the board a little bit and try mm-hmm. to hear the best we can outside of all of this institutional sort of um desire to want to shape people according to their theology and just get outside of all of that stuff and try to understand scripture on its own terms because some of what's in this Hagar story, if it's scripture and it is, and if it's God breathed and it is, (laughs) and if it's useful for a bunch of stuff in righteousness and it is, 
then uh, it's a pretty phenomenal story. So what, yeah. I don't know, do you want to just start by reading the story? And again, our, our general yeah, plan, absolutely. our general plan here is we're going to spend two weeks with the story. Yeah, we we're going to do through verse eight of, is it is the 16th chapter of Genesis? 16? Genesis 16, seven through, I think we said we were going to go through 13. If I have time to do a little more research before our next chapter, we or before our next episode, we might do verse 14, but no promises there. Is that, is that the part about Ishmael and the wild donkey of a man and all that? Because I have the research no, on that No, that's 11 and 12. What it I'm is. talking about is okay. verse 14 when they talk about the name of the place where Hagar is in the story. Is it Hagar or Hagar? Well, I've no, because it's I not actually, Hagar. I actually heard Hagar today, and I'm not sure that that's right, but that's what I heard from. Again, this was Rebecca Ree, who is a Hebrew linguist. Uh, yeah. from from an East Coast university. And she was saying it, I think, Hagar. And I was like, I've never heard it that way before. I realized so I as don't soon as know. I said it aloud that when we did, because the only reason why I have this research, shout out to um, Holly and Noah Ullman, um, yes. because this I did this study with them. It was brilliant. It was such a fun evening. Um, but I remember it was really funny because we kept saying... Hagar, which is the name of the Viking from the comics. <laughs> and we were like, that's not right. So it is Hagar. Okay. Or however Rebecca was I saying. I think I heard it Hagar. I'm Hagar. not I'm not sure how I heard it today. I'll ask her when we have. Yeah. So cuz our general plan is we're going to do two podcasts on this story however far we get, but we're also going to do for the first time some of what we've talked about in the past is for if people want to go even deeper than what you and I yeah. do in these podcasts, we're going to do some spin-off separate podcasts to really get in depth with some of the key biblical concepts in it. We have a couple of people lined up for that over the next couple of weeks. So we'll see yeah. how that goes. It's just a trial run. To, I, I, we're not making promises that it goes beyond all of that, but I think there's enough substance in so many of these stories and other conversations that we have that if we can tap into some of the people we know, if you do have interest in listening to that topic more, yeah. then just you know hit play on that episode and, and it'll go more deeply into it. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say as well, one of the things that I have really, really respected about you in your classroom is the extent to which you do research things and then how willing you are to say that you don't know when somebody asks a question that you don't have an answer to, which is part of why I'm saying I think verse 14 is super relevant to what we're talking about. I feel really solid in all of the rest of this. Verse 14 and some of the implications of that and some of the potential ties to other biblical references is something that I'm like, Ugh. I don't know that I understand all of what's going on there. So, when I think I don't know is such a fun phrase. It's so like fun. I think in certain people's mind they're like, "Uh-oh, I don't know that part of scripture. God's mad." I've lost all credibility. Uh, I know it's like, like there's no. a fair amount of scripture and it's super fun to be like, "I can't wait to see what's in this one because the last one was so cool." And mm-hmm. so I don't know it can be a really fun invitation versus I got to hide it from all my friends who might dare to see me that I don't know stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it builds the credibility then when you do know things because they know that you're not going to say it if you don't know it. I think that's very fair. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see. I'll hopefully do some more research on Genesis 16, 14 between here and next week, but we'll see what happens. Um, Yeah. Okay. So Genesis 16, 7 through 13 is as far as we're going to go for now. Um, do we want to read the whole thing first or do we want to talk a little bit about the backstory? Why don't you give us just uh, some snippets of the backstory, then let's okay. read it through 13. And I think we're, we've decided we're probably not getting further in our discussion about the passage past verse eight, I think is where we thought yeah, we might get. So, so yeah, give us some backstory. We'll read the passage and then we'll talk through those couple of verses with some stuff to get into. That's, that's pretty cool in there and it's really interesting. we'll wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of some of the backstory, what we were talking about is that in terms of like where we are in scripture at this point, um, Abraham and Sarah, right, who Abraham is the patriarch of the Israelite nation, um, the one who made the covenant with God about the multitudes and and that whole thing. Very, I don't know, maybe people will know that passage or not. It is from the Old Testament. So like kind of a coin flip. I know because he's my hero. I mean, you know, like I, I wanted to be a patriarch. That's so. You've done you just, a wonderful today, job. Of today's that. day and age, you just can't say that. I so, was going to yeah, say, so. you with your five children, you've done a wonderful job being a God, patriarch. God promised to make a big nation through me. We've the started with five so far. Okay, we, count, yes. we can count these, though. That's the thing. You're supposed to have so many that you count it's That's the counts. stars and the sand and, and sand, the yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But, you've but had five. Patriarch Pete has started with five. And patriarch then we'll, Pete. Yeah, we're going to double P and That's then we'll go bad. from there. I hate that. Okay. okay. So, Abraham and Sarai are actually currently at this point. Abram and Sarai, mm-hmm. which there's a lot of implications about that. It's that a wonderful story about how they get into. the H's in their name later. Yep. yep. And all of the like 
the Hebrew craziness behind that implication. But basically, at this point, they have left their homeland. They've answered God's call, left their homeland, packed everything up. It's like them and their household at this point. They're in Canaan, I believe. Yeah, they're in Canaan. Um, And God's like, y'all are going to have a baby. And Abram and Sarai are like, we are very old. We cannot have a baby. What is going on? Um, the covenant with God has not yet been made yet. That is important. That'll tie in later. Um, but yeah, at this point, they have been promised a son. However, I believe specifically God has promised Abram a son. And there hasn't been a mention of Sarai in that promise yet, even though Abram and Sarai are married. But I think, didn't she laugh already? Like with I the think idea? she did. So, or was that maybe what, later? No, I, I, I think don't she remember does. the sequence. Okay, we'll have to go look at that. Yeah. I, I would assume that she has laughed at this point. I'm willing to be wrong about that. Um, because then what happens is they turn around and Sarai is like, I can't have a baby. So you have a baby with my maid, Hagar, because then we will fulfill God's promise. You will have the son that God promised to you and we will be doing all of the things that God wanted us to do. So yeah, there's a, there's a whole thing with that. Basically, Abram does have a baby with Hagar. Hagar gets kind of high and mighty about that to a certain extent because she she's like Sarai isn't important anymore because I am carrying the son that was promised to my master by God. Um, there's a, an interesting dynamic that again, will tie into some of what happens in verse nine, which we'll talk about in our next episode. I can't remember what it actually says. I'm pulling it up now. Um, yeah. Cause you're going to read through it in, in just a minute. So we'll get the totality of that. But I think that gives us a decent, Sort mm -hmm. of where are we in scripture right now? This is such a critical moment yeah. in God calling forth a people who are going to be, who are meant to steward his light and his tove in the world and, and, and hold to that in the midst of the darkness kind of stuff. And this is like the beginning or the origin story yeah. of all of that. And it's crazy. Which is crazy. It is. It's crazy how it goes, it goes awry. And so while, while you're looking that up, I just remember a sermon on all of this uh, that won't be what we talk about today, but just talking about that we often birth Ishmael's in our life versus birthing Isaac's in our life when we decide to take matters into our own hands. And it was just, you know, that's, that's a part of what's going on in the story here too. And God's redemptive grace in the midst of it is all part of this story. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a fabulous story. Anyway, continue. Uh, just that in verse six, Abram says to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. That's something that we'll unpack a little bit more when we do talk about verse nine and next week's episode. That's like not a fantastic translation of what happened. It's really not Sarai like beating Hagar up or like, I don't know, being mean and cruel to her and awful and like all of these things. Um, however, it is it is real that Hagar does leave after that. Um, and so this is where we pick up in verse seven. Um which it says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also seen here him who sees me? That translation of verse 13 drives me nuts because yeah, that's not even close. Well, I just read the last part about seeing because that's ultimately where by the time we get done with this entire thing over two weeks, the importance of that part of what her response is in light of mm -hmm. after unpacking all of these different circumstances, it's, it's really a phenomenal thing that she says. It is. Yeah. Reading it in the English, I mean, it's kind of close, but some of the implications aren't there. Um, where she says, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. 
for she said, have I also seen here him who sees me? Um, yeah, I'm going to, we're not going to talk about that this week. We're talking about that next week. Yeah. So Um, yeah, let's stay with seven and eight. Seven and eight. So you've got the backstory. We, you know, Sarah has booted her. Mm -hmm. And maybe just a quick note about that too, is that uh, I heard some profound teaching from your brother, who's going to also join us in some of these spinoff episodes, that it's always women in the story who start something new or change the directory uh, trajectory of something Mm -hmm. that within the biblical story. And so Sarah has changed Sarai has changed the trajectory of this promise. And then men are the ones that usually bring whatever the trajectory is forward mm-hmm. within the story. And so it's kind of, you see it right here. I mean, yeah. Sarai changes the trajectory and Abraham was like, yep. And then begins to bring it forward. So it's a fascinating thing. And then Sarai kicks yeah. her out and now she finds herself outside of the home. So yeah. Anyway, take us into just seven and eight then. Yeah. So the first piece of this that I think is really, really important is to understand that In the Bible, two of the biggest questions that are asked consistently are who are you and where are you? And when those questions are asked of a person by God, it's not because God is confused. It's because God is wondering if this person can recognize who they are and where they are, not necessarily in space and time, but like in the context of their story, where are you and can you see it? Um, And it's always really, really important then how a person will respond to those questions because that'll tell you so much about who they are and what their understanding is and how they are going to move forward out of this place. Because a great example, and I think you're going to bring it up, of this, the first time we hear Mm -hmm. um, where are you happens in Genesis 3 in the garden garden. story, right? They've just eaten of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. God comes down, takes his walk in the garden. Mm -hmm. And it's not like they found the cherry tree to hide behind when God's (laughs) like, well, where are the two of them? Come on. You know, where are you? But then their response is quite telling Mm -hmm. because they're sowing fig leaves and they're hiding and all of that. So it gives us a great indication of basically in what circumstances are you right now is kind of how God is asking this question. Yeah, absolutely. So in regard to the question of who is Hagar, at this point we have a lot of context about like, what her circumstances are and what her life has been up until this point. But a piece of this that is really, really important um, is that, first of all, Hagar is an Egyptian, which if you know much of anything about the Old Testament, the Egyptians and the Israelites do not get along. Granted, the Israelites as a people do not exist yet. They're going to soon-ish. But like, Egyptian is not typically a phenomenal thing in the Old Testament, especially as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant and and his people. It's fair. Um, it's kind of inherently other in a lot of ways. Um, additionally, Hagar's name means stranger, which is really interesting because part of the way that Noah and Holly will talk about names in the Hebrew is how we think about like if you meet somebody named Joy or Grace or whatever, like Yes, that is a word in the English language, but it's also their name. And it's a similar thing in the Hebrew. So in Hebrew, they wouldn't have addressed her as Hagar, knowing that her name meant stranger. Her name would just literally be stranger. Mm -hmm. And in our English Bible, they have just sounded that out phonetically and turned it into Hagar as a name. Yeah, I mean, it's even questionable. And we've, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's questionable whether these were actually the names given to them yeah. at birth, but the writers of scripture who were chronically in the important stories that have been passed down through oral tradition quite likely named them stranger based on the function that they had in the story, which then came out as Hagar in the English, but it would be debatable. I like, I don't think her parents named her stranger yeah, when she came no. out. So she, I mean, maybe it was, I'm sure it wasn't Susie either, but right. you know, looking backwards, they say, so the function of this person in this story, she's a real character. It really happened, but they're trying to emphasize or tease out the important dimension of this story. Yeah, absolutely. So then in terms of like where, what is going on with Hagar right now, this is a female Egyptian slave woman named Stranger, which is a whole thing in itself that is like you are completely alone in that situation. On top of that, her master, not only is she not in Egypt, she's not in her native land. She also is not even in the land that she was sold into slavery in. Her masters have left their homeland and are now wandering around in the middle of nowhere. And so she has been isolated from communities twice now 
and then on top of all of that is chosen to be the one to bear Abram's child, isolating her from the rest of the servants. So she is like utterly alone Mm -hmm. in a way that so many of us don't even have a concept of at this point. And then she leaves. She leaves that place and goes out into the wilderness. And you, I feel like you can probably sum it up better than I can what the idea of wilderness symbolizes. Yeah, I can. But I, but I think <clears throat> you hadn't said it to me that way before as we were kind of working through the passage a bit ahead of time. Yeah. But I, I can't think of many, really, if any times in my life, but I'm sure people who are listening and I, I'm sure bazillions of people have the experience where they're in a scenario where there literally is the proverbial, there's no one else, there's nowhere else to turn. Mm-hmm. Where you're just so utterly alone, you can't turn back towards your parents yeah. for whatever reason, or siblings isn't working, you have no friends, people with whom you might share vocation, like to just be so utterly and purely alone. I think sometimes I might have approximated that feeling like really late at night going to sleep or something and thinking, yeah. gosh, I just feel like I did my whole day again and nobody saw really any real part of who I am. And I feel kind of alone, but then I still had people to whom I could probably turn if I needed to, but I don't know that I've ever been a scenario like you're describing Hagar when she's going out into the wilderness as stranger, literally to everybody and doesn't have anybody that sees her or anywhere that she can turn. I just can't even imagine that. I don't know what your experience has been like with that, but, but I have a feeling that a lot of people end up feeling that way in certain times in life. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure we all have an element of loneliness or aloneness or strangerness that we deal with in our lives. But I like I don't even have a concept of what it would be like to be alone in that capacity. Like even at the moments where I have felt like there is no one for me to turn to, that hasn't necessarily been true. Um, It's it's more been like a trick of my mind in a situation. But here she like really truly is isolated and there really is nothing that she can do. And, and the thing about that that I think is quite intriguing <laughs> is the circumstances that brought her there were, of course, less than ideal. Right. But the wilderness then now, to your point of what you asked earlier, it, it, this isn't, of course, the only time the idea of wilderness shows up in the biblical text. But when it does show up in the text, it's always a place of testing, mm-hmm. a, a place of trial of some kind. And so... The Israelites, after they failed their test of faith to enter into the promised land the first time, because they were like, oh, there's giants. We'll never be able to take the place. And God's like, turn around and wander the wilderness for a while. Yeah. Yep. And it was, it's just a place of testing where you almost inevitably discover something unbelievably important about who you are and where you are in life and who God is and who you are. Um, Jesus clearly was tested in the wilderness heavily before he started his ministry of the kingdom of heaven is now here or near. And so the wilderness is a is not an easy place. And I was just talking with a friend of mine today about some of this. He's a he's a dean at a university, not about this specific thing, but it was really oh, yeah. a topic. And I have to speak at the chapel at our university next week. And the talk is going to be, um, it's all supposed to be about thy kingdom come. That's the theme of the chapel. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to make the statement that I actually don't think when we pray the Lord's Prayer, if we if we really know what his kingdom's about, I'm not sure that we're terribly interested in praying thy kingdom come because the ways of his kingdom are incredibly as beautiful as they are for us. They're also very disruptive. And mostly we want God to be a companion who blesses my life. We don't want to serve the God of heaven and in the ways of his kingdom, because we'd rather just have God as a, as a nice little sort of puppy companion. The vending machine. Yeah. To enable my faith. And so part of that, the point is, is that's, I, I think when we get into the wilderness, those times of trial and testing are not, there's nothing about them that are fun. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine how she's all feeling right now. And yet she's still now going to be confronted by a test at the end of it all. But I, but my buddy said at the university said part of the ways of God's kingdom is there just isn't any other way that's as effective for the formation of who we are other than testing, trial, suffering, that kind of thing. It just is, that's why I don't want his kingdom to come because yeah. the Bible, if we actually read it and dare become literate about <laughs> it, basically says you should be rejoicing if there's suffering. Nobody wants any part of that. Yeah. Yep. So absolutely. this is where Hagar is in that, in that space in terms of the wilderness part of it that I'm familiar with. Yeah. I don't always understand. I don't, until you started explaining it, and I didn't know what was going on with her and God, but I'm familiar with the idea of, of wilderness for sure. And I think yeah. most people have been in wilderness 
many times and think that it's because they did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Most often it is because God is going to test them to bring about a different kind of durable character. Yeah. And that was the thing that I was going to say is that when we say the wilderness is a place of testing, it's not like a you're going to go out into the wilderness and bad things are going to happen and it's going to build character. Right. It's like, no, you go out in the wilderness because that is where you go to be with God. And out of that, it's probably not always going to be super fun to be in a really intensive one-on-one relationship with God when there's not a lot else going on in your life. Um, that's probably not a super happy experience all of the time. You're going to get called out on some stuff and it's going to be rough. Um, but it is inherently a place where that testing, if people engage with it, come out with a stronger relationship with God and usually a stronger sense of identity and their purpose and where they're going with the rest of their story. And they find God as for them. Again, mm-hmm. they probably find a God who is, yes, a companion, but much bigger than a companion. Mm-hmm. And and also discover that God is for them in that, which is clearly going to be the case in her response later that, that we'll talk about next week. But okay, so that's the wilderness. That's the question. What else do we want to cover as part of like what happens in this scene with her? Well, part of what I was going to say as well is that I'm also pretty sure that this is the first time that somebody encounters God in the wilderness. I think it is too. Because that's think part of what mm-hmm. Caleb, um, my brother, was talking about the other night as well as, like you said earlier, is that women tend to have all of the first moments in the Bible because they are the those are the trajectory changing moments. And so I'm actually pretty sure that this moment with Hagar meeting God in the wilderness, we see it a lot after this. We see it with Jacob. We see it with Moses. We see it like we see it over and over and over again. But I'm pretty sure Hagar is the first, which is especially interesting because, again, she's Egyptian mm-hmm. and a woman and a slave. Mm-hmm. And her name is literally Stranger. And she is setting this trajectory path for the patriarchs of Israel, which is not even her people, not even her nation. It's, it's an incredible statement to that whole persistent theme of God, of, of the kind of people who hear from God and begin to walk in durable ways of faith are hardly ever the fancy people in scripture. They're hardly yeah. ever the people that have been designated with some version of earthly power or oftentimes even been anointed with a kingdom power. You think about just the utter failures of of the Abrahams and the Davids and the Sauls and the Solomons and so many people that were given these places of earthly power, but it's almost always the people on the margins and on the the outside of it all, the unexpected people, yeah. the, the fishermen that can't fish, you know, the tax yeah. collector, the guy who's like, I'm going to kill a bunch of Romans. Like these are the people that get invited into mm-hmm the company of God in some really profound ways. And Hagar, it, like that does set a principle when you first see something in scripture, pay like really close attention because that should teach us so much about what we can anticipate through the rest of scripture. Yeah. So I have a quick um, quiz for you. It's great. Actually. I'm so biblically illiterate. I won't miss anything. This is going to be awesome. Oh boy. Um, so first of all, if it, this isn't necessarily like a, like a biblical literacy quiz, this is just like a, let's think critically about this for a moment. Kind okay. Of quiz. I'll try um, if you are in Hagar's position, you are alone in that kind of capacity, at least with people. And that's the key word here. Where might you turn for help? Wait, if I'm all alone in the wilderness? If you're, well, okay. If you're as isolated as Hagar is right. in her situation, you can't turn to the people around you for help. Right. Where might you go for help? Who might you turn to? Well, the to? Christian answer would be to God. Right. Um, but Hagar is Egyptian. Egyptian. Oh, so maybe so, to her god. To her gods. Mm, okay, yeah. So she might be calling out to Egyptian gods at this point. Does she call out to the Abrahamic god? That's a very good, you know what, that's actually very fair. Because I, I think we underestimate mm-hmm. how robust the views were of all of the various gods that were available to people yeah. in that time. We think... Like, we look back and say, oh, they were so backwards and silly and stupid and dumb. Well, first of all, I think we're the ones that are backwards, silly, (laughs) stupid, and dumb when it comes to thinking that there aren't a whole lot of spiritual beings that are fancying themselves as gods all around. Uh, But also, too, clearly she would have turned to her gods in this moment. Mm -hmm. She would have turned to the Egyptian gods. But the thing that happens in verse 7 is it says, now the angel of the Lord found her. Right. Which I think is just stunning because, again, stranger, female, slave, who now doesn't even believe in this God, 
and he or it's not necessarily that she doesn't believe that he exists it's that that is not the god that she follows and he finds her in the wilderness he and, comes to her and just so we're clear usually an angel of the lord means a theophany or an appearance of god mm-hmm. God's self in the midst of it. Yeah, so, it's I not mean, an angel. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it might be, but it, but I think we're on safer ground to say that in this case, it was God himself that came and the writers just refer to sort of as an angel of the Lord. Yeah. So that's something that I love so deeply as well is just the idea of like, she didn't necessarily have to call out to him. She didn't even necessarily have to serve him. He found her. And in that place in verse eight, he says, Hagar, Sarai's maid, Where have you come from and where are you going? Which, first of all, he's answered one of the two major questions for her. He says, stranger, maid of Sarai. He tells her who she is, which is such an interesting moment because it's kind of him being like, are you going to push back on this Mm -hmm. or are you going to see that that's who you are? And then he says, "Where where do you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And so in her answer, She agrees with God. She says, yep, Sarai is my mistress. I am her maid and I'm going not there. Hmm. That's where I've come from. I don't really know where I'm going. Yeah. And the way that Caleb framed it last night when we were talking about this that I thought was so beautiful was that he suggested that this is Hagar waiting for God to tell her where she is going. Because she can recognize in this moment, here's the thing, and you mentioned this earlier, is that this exchange is mirroring the exchange in the garden where God shows up and says, where are you, right? And instead of hiding or running away or blaming Sarai and being like, Sarai is so awful and so I had to leave, but I didn't really have a choice. Hagar is like, I'm fleeing. She's my mistress. I'm supposed to be there and I am fleeing from that place. And so she stands, God faces him and answers his questions and then waits for God to tell her where she is going. Hmm. It's uh, and again, of a God that she doesn't even worship. Right. And, and again, going back to that, like, because she ends up calling out his name or is the first, and I know we'll talk about it next week, the first mm-hmm. person to sort of give a name to God. This is God. This isn't like some random angel showing up on the scene. Yeah. It's just how they choose to talk about it in, in those times. But I think just to see that pattern again, you know, we see that question, where are you? It's not explicit in most of the books of the prophets, but the answer Mm -hmm. to that question is explicit to the most of the books of the prophets where they're always saying, here I am Lord, here I am Lord, here I am Lord. And I think among the many postures of life that is not always just a one-time thing to be consistently pressed upon with that question, where are you? Mm-hmm. And that that again is not a, a geographic question. It's a it's a like a mentality question. It's a circumstantial question. It's an awareness question. It's all of that kind of thing. Yeah. I it's a it's a if somebody wanted to spend a year of some kind of spiritual discipline of some sort, just get up and answer that question before you even start your day. Yeah. It is a is a fascinating way to start of like begin to understand yourself and God and who you are. And I think it would be terribly revealing to wake up and try to answer that question each day. Yeah, absolutely. I actually I kinda wanna try that now. Not in like the weird not in the weird, like cheesy Christian podcast way of like, I'm gonna give that a go for you the next You need an accountability group. That's what you need. Oh, please don't do that. <laughs> I'm gonna be um, your accountability is there, group. Is there a money back guarantee on this one? A patriot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you try this for 30 days, you will know exactly where you are. Thus says Patriarch Pete. Yay. So, yeah, I hope you do it. Well, I did. I, th- there's so much in all of this, but I think mm-hmm. it just, as we wrap things up, I think to continue to emphasize for us both, but anybody listening to just clear the board of whatever we think about God. I'd just be curious, like in some, what did you learn about? I mean, what, what do I learn about God in this? That's yeah. a, that's a profound statement that one thing I'm just going to hang on to is that God actually pursued stranger who he was a stranger to her mm-hmm. and he wasn't sitting back with his arms folded going, gosh, I hope someday she becomes aware of me. Like he actually, <laughs> I hope went, somebody tells her about right, me. He just like so actually went saved. towards her. And, and I just think that's a, to let my ideas of God be shaped by that number one. And I think the other thing that really stands out in this passage is just 
um, that time that she's in the wilderness already and just that idea of nowhere left to turn. And yet that's not the end of her story, that there's going to be more story ahead for her as devastating as that circumstance feels, I think, where you don't feel like you have anywhere left to turn, there will be at some point somewhere to turn, yeah. even if it doesn't feel like I think those are my two main takeaways from the story at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of my main takeaways from the story come in in verses 9 through 13. I, I think there's yeah. a lot of the really uh, intense content that comes in from there just in terms of um, – how she respond or how God responds to Hagar now that she has answered his question and then how she responds to his response, if that makes sense. Um, those are some of my favorite interactions between God and a human in, in the Bible. It's one of the most beautiful interactions I've, I've read about. Um, but I do think that my, my biggest takeaway from here is again, I think, and we've talked a little bit about this. I was thinking about this again the other day. I think it was maybe like the first episode of Deeper Magic where we talked about how one of the biggest struggles that I have had growing up in the church and and then more recently in my life as I have actually developed a relationship with God, um, one of the hardest things for me about Christianity is that I feel like this and this God and this way of life is something that I want to give my entire life to, and it doesn't want all of me. Mm. And that is something that is so hard for me and, and always has been. And I'm still dealing with the tension of that in a lot of ways. Um, but part of what is so powerful to me about this story in particular is the fact that like, this is somebody who, by modern Christian standards, has no right to interaction with God and God seeks her out and it doesn't require being saved. It doesn't require at like anybody else introducing Hagar to God. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even require like a fundamental shift in what she is doing. Uh, in, in fairness, God, as we'll see in our next episode, does ask for fundamental shifts from her, but God pursuing her and God approaching her and God having this interaction with Hagar is not dependent. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. That is after. That is after they have started building their relationship that then he asks that of her. Um, but yeah. I think she could see, like, she makes that move, but she also then says who he is. But I think she could mm-hmm. see that. And so the willingness to trust the unbelievably brutal move that she has to make in response to it is a direct yeah. result of experiencing the God in the way that you just described. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that would be my takeaway from this story is just, at least just from verses seven and eight, is the idea of like, yeah, this is this is somebody who, by all rights in the modern Christian way of thinking, should not be having an interaction with God. And yet God pursues her because he can see how alone she is and that she needs help. And, and so he is the one who goes to her. Yeah. I mean, the, the, one of those maddening Christian ease statements to me is again, <laughs> you know, and understandably so when people that we love and care about maybe seem to not at all be interested in anything related to kingdom life. And then somebody will say, well, God cares about it much more than you do. And I'm always like, that is among the more or the least helpful <laughs> things, the more unhelpful things you yeah. can say to somebody. It's just so, uh, I hate like never, mm-hmm. ever, ever, ever say that. But within all of that, as hideous that is, there is a bit of truth in that, that this woman has been cast out entirely and, and God is pursuing her. Yeah. And I just, yeah, there, there's, I'm looking forward to the rest of this because I do think what he asks of her is something that, again, I don't want God's kingdom to come Yeah. if that's the way God's kingdom functions. <laughs> and yet, I think that we begin to see an unbelievable invitation in the descriptions of Ishmael as a wild donkey of the man and hand against the brothers that what it's not going to be mm-hmm. is that you see God, you know, this is how this went. There was a big mistake made. She the, messed up. Yeah. The Islamic people all like descended from Hagar and there are that all of these Arabs that are constantly wild. at war. Like that's not what's in that passage at all. And, and there is, you know, we definitely want to talk about the idea that the Islamic people trace themselves back to Abraham through the line of Ishmael and Hagar. And there's, there's things to talk about related to that. But what we're not talking about is some undisciplined, wild, barbaric creature (laughs) that comes from Hagar's womb and has always wanted to fight everybody. That is like, so the, even the reason why she says you see me and why she's willing to go back is Mm -hmm. because of, of the importance of what's in Ishmael's 
names. I'm looking forward to more yeah. on this particular podcast. Thanks for leading us through that well, part of it. Just a quick thing about all of that as well is that I think with um, how how we're not reading the story is I also think with, again, the the modern Christian tendency to read female obedience into Bible stories in a lot of ways. Oh, it's there. It's oh, everywhere. It's, oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, but it's absolutely not like Hagar being like, I did a bad thing. And God's like, yes, you did. Now you got to go back because you did a bad thing and that's your punishment. And Hagar's like, you're right. You see me and that I'm a terrible person because I disobeyed my masters. I'm going to go back now. Thanks, God. Like that is not at all what this story is saying. And we'll dig into some of that next week with verses nine through 13. But that is like, that's actually so far from what this story is saying. Yeah, good. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I know that there's, there, like you said, there's going to be a lot of substance in there. And we will then, at some point in the next couple of weeks, tape a couple of other episodes. You might participate in some of them, yeah, should your schedule allow. Scheduling allows. And, uh, and if not, then I'll try to, you know, lift the heavy load of, of doing the interviewing <laughs> of some people. But we're going to invite Rebecca Ree into the podcast, and as well as your brother, who does an amazing job in the Hebrew for people that yeah. want to geek out a little further on the story. But otherwise, this is a blast to talk through the story with you. Yeah, this has been really, really fun. And you can't even imagine the relevant things I'm going to bring up next week. You think that, you think that I am limited to Katy Perry and, and Dylan Mulvaney? You just wait. I hope you know, by the way, that earlier last week, me and the entire staff at the coffee shop where I work started singing Firework by Katy Perry, which I legitimately have not thought about since I was 12 years old. But we all I knew I every single word. It's a great song. It is a great song. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to The Deeper Magic again this week. I'm Peter. Say bye, Anna. Bye, Anna. Talk to you guys soon. Deeper Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0, viewable on the site as well.